listening to the podcast for Nerdy Christians, where faith meets fandom. Welcome to the show for progressive followers of Jesus who also happen to love Hogwarts, Hobbits, and hearing the tragedy of Darth Plagueis the Wise. This is Season 5, Episode 6, Villains and the Confession of Sin. I'm Adam Thomas, and I'm very happy to be sitting across the internet from Carrie Combs. Hey, Carrie. Hey, Adam. Why do we love villains so much? Why are they so intriguing? Why do they have the best songs in Disney movies? No kidding. And why is Darth Vader my daughter's favorite character in Star Wars? Oh, my cousin's kid, too. Little Olivia loves Darth Vader. Had Her three-year-old birthday cake was Darth Vader face. Our quotation from the Christian tradition is from the Confession of Sin from Write One Morning Prayer. It goes like this. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from thy ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against thy holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done. And we have done those things which we ought not to have done. And our quotation from Nerd Canon comes from Black Panther. This is near the end of the film when T'Challa is talking to Killmonger. And T'Challa says, You want to see us become just like the people you hate so much. Divide and conquer the land as they did. You have become them. You will destroy the world, Wakanda included. We chose the confession of sin from right one morning prayer because it has my favorite phrase in the entire book of common prayer in it, which is the devices, devices and, desires and desires of our own hearts. <laughs> yeah. It's just such a great phrase. Uh, I, I do want to quote the confession of sin that we Episcopalians read more often, uh, which is the one from the Eucharist service. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. One of the things I appreciate about the fact that we say a confession almost every Sunday is that it acknowledges up front that we do sin all the time. Sin is one of those churchy words that can get overused to the point where it doesn't mean anything at all. And we've talked in the podcast before about sin, repentance, and desire for returning to be in right relationship with God, with one another, with each other. And part of what's nice about our baptismal promises when we baptize people is that you are asked. Um, one of the questions is whenever you fall into sin, will you repent and return to the Lord? It assumes that we are imperfect creatures who will hurt one another and hurt each other and hurt ourselves. And it invites us to always have that door open to be returning. And not just hurting one another individually, but being part of larger systems, interlocking systems of oppression Mm -hmm. and violence, uh, And we are all part of those systems, complicit in them. And one of the things that I think the confession of sin does so well is help us to recognize that. And every time we say it once again and again and again, commit to being part of the solution to those big sins that we're still stuck in, 
um, rather than part of the problem, even though we're still stuck in them. We, we commit again and again to try to move towards solutions for them. And we do it uh, in the Confession of Sin in the Episcopal Church corporately. We do it together. The Confession of Sin is a plural uh, prayer. We confess. It's not just me confessing my personal sins. It's we confessing together. Uh, repenting together. And then once we have said that we are sorry for all of this, we then ask God and to get, have mercy on us and forgive us. And that forgiveness then opens us up to being able to walk in God's ways, to walk away from those systemic issues, those, those systemic sins. And then we symbolically share the peace with one another. And, and what we're talking about today is that general confession, is that corporate confession. It's different than when you think of like taking confession, making your confession an individual level. What we're talking about is that doing it together, acknowledging our participation as a body, as people in a society, in a system that participate in these, what we've said on the podcast before, was it Brian McLaren's phrase, the, the suicidal systems of the world where all of our collective actions lead to degradation and violence, racism, and other sins that we all participate in. Um, and part of what we're hoping to do is to look at some very familiar villains. Adam has incredibly categorized them into different ways that they have different motivations and look at how we mirror some of that because the best, most interesting villains are the ones that can teach us something about either the heroes in the properties we love or even ourselves. Yeah. And when we watch a movie or read a book that has a villain character in it, it's very easy to not identify or to not want to identify with that character. But hopefully the the writer of that particular um, that particular media has done it in such a way that allows us to enter into not just the hero's character, but also the villain's character to see something of ourselves in the villain so that we can learn how not to be in the world, not just from the hero's perspective, learning how to be in the world, but it, it can be a helpful thing for us to turn that mirror on ourselves from the villain's perspective and to say, well, how am I like so-and-so, you know, what little part of me, is um, a reflection of that character and that and, and doing that kind of reflective work with these villains that we're going to talk about today can help us then to have a more authentic engagement with the, a prayer like the confession of sin so if you find yourself singing a villain song long after the fact long after the film has ended and you're just jamming out to in the dark of the night or i forgot all other villain songs except the one from <laughs> Anastasia. Yeah, here are the five <laughs> categories uh, of villain motivations. And I'm sure there are more, or we could do subcategories within here, but these are the five we have time to talk about in the next half hour. Um, so the first category is villains who revel in chaos. The second one is villains who are all about some sort of supremacy. The third are villains who are steeped 100% in their own self-interest. So they don't see anything outside of that. Uh, the fourth one are villains who are stuck in their own pain and that pain makes them lash out at others uh, and destroy the things around them. And then the fifth uh, villain, I, this is, I, I'm not a hundred percent sold on my title for this one, but I'll just use it anyway. It's villains who are seeking justice through destructive means. 
let's dispense with the chaos category very quickly mm-hmm. because chaotic villains are probably the ones that are, are we're least able to associate with in our own selves. Um, this is the Joker in the Dark Knight uh, is probably the best example of a villain who is just chaotic. To go back to our alignment chart would be straight up chaotic evil. And that makes them the most difficult to relate to, which might, as you said, it makes them therefore the least interesting because why are they being bad? Just because. Just because, yeah. And, and so anything with demons, horror movies have a lot of chaotic villains in them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I came up with two others. Uh, Q from Star Trek, who is not really a villain. I mean, he is sometimes He's the kind antagonist. Of he's definitely yeah. an antagonist, but he's very chaotic. Um, and then the other, last one, I started going through the, the villains from um, Pixar movies. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, Sid from Toy Story is a chaotic villain he, he is and he's one of the i think the scariest because yeah. we all know that we all know that kid who is like destroying ants with a magnifying glass and breaking things just to break them yes yeah so would you say yeah. that san francisco from inside out putting broccoli on pizza <laughs> is a villain <laughs> i the think city, so the city of san francisco <laughs> the whole city is the as imagined of- the villain of Inside Out. I like that. Yes. So it's pure, it's pure chaos. It's just destruction, wanton destruction, as you might say. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's not really a lot of understanding. There might not even be a lot of monologuing as much because the motivations aren't as concrete as mm-hmm. other as other villains. Although the Joker does like to talk in the Dark Knight. So what about our next category? The next category is supremacy. The Emperor in Star Wars is probably the best example in fiction of somebody who is going for supremacy. Mm-hmm. Um, he is, and supremacy also can be there can be a control and order aspect to it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, power and the, over uh, others, right? Um, specifically, power of of you subjugating whole swaths of society, which is different from self interest, which could which could exist in a lot of different ways. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, but the right. Emperor manipulates for years the galactic republic uh and within the war the clone wars to to create the first galactic empire thinking about voldemort from harry potter and the very visual representation of the statue that voldemort builds in the ministry of magic of a witch and wizard sitting on thrones that are being crushed and held up by muggles by non-magic people um, they have been subjugated. They are below them and they are being crushed under the wizard, this wizard superiority. And the one before that statue is also a supremacist statue, which is there's the, oh, the sure. witch and the wizard and more... then the other magical creatures are all sort of looking at the witch and wizard in awe, right? Fawning over them. Yeah. The, the goblin even looking up with like, oh, look at them. They're so great. <laughs> Talk about revisionist history there. But these are a lot of our quintessential fantasy villains. You got Sauron in Lord of the Rings, uh, the Borg in Star Trek, Red Skull, who we talked about recently from Captain America. The Borg, let's just pop back to them for just a second. Mm. They are interesting because I put them in this category because they do take over other cultures, but then they assimilate those cultures technological distinctiveness into their own society. So it's a hmm. the Borg are a little bit strange and I wasn't quite sure which category to put them in because they were designed to be an uh, kind of a metaphor for consumption as a whole. The Borg are, from their own perspective, the pinnacle of evolution. 
And we see that with, with the Daleks and Doctor Who, these you know creatures that want to eliminate others. And basically the, the supremacist villains want to control, have power, maybe put forth their own vision of how the world is. And obviously they're at the top of it, right? And none of these people are like, I'm going to re- completely redo society, but I'll make myself like somewhere in the middle. Yeah, they've got the idea of how, how, how things can be basically remade in their own image, which is such a sinful way of thinking and such a self-centered. And like we said, it's this premises way of viewing the world. Exterminate, exterminate. Sorry. <laughs> there was a Dalek in here for a second. I don't know where it came from. I don't know where it came from. Thankfully, you did not get exterminated. When we look at these type of characters, I think, at least from my perspective, when I see them on the screen, they do make me squirm a little bit because I think to myself, okay, how am I reflecting their motivation? How how am I engaged in a supremacy? Mm. Uh, you know, and at, you know, for myself as a straight white cisgendered male mm-hmm. uh i could able-bodied college-educated college educated. i mean english speak <laughs> I've, got a, I've got a lot of privileges and when yeah. i kind of put them all into a ball i think whoa this you know it would be very easy for me to side with supremacists as opposed to trying to set myself up to to be an ally for for people mm-hmm. that a supremacist would be trying to oppress um, and, and, and not excusing myself by saying, oh, but I'm with them, but I, I, I could still, I'm still part of that system. Well, and, and basically the root sin of this categorization is, is when these people imagine the world, they, they are at the center, they are the norm. And so much of that of our own supremacy comes out when we picture, picture who, you know, who, who matters or just who is included um, that the picture ends up inevitably looking like us. And that is an important thing for which we repent and work towards eliminating. That idea of a default. And once you have mm-hmm. an idea of a default, then everything else is degenerate. Right. Is other is, is, and there, and therefore either frightening or not as important or mm-hmm. generalized, easy to be generalized. All right. Third category is another kind of classic villain motivation self-interest also has some of the best songs so yeah, and a lot of the disney villains fall into this category it's uh, kind of the most easy to understand without necessarily with while being an inflated version of what we ourselves do none of us are like scar in fullness but we all have little little bits of them so i think they are popular villains they're maybe the some of the most easy to understand so who yeah, do we I got think so so we have well let's just start with the disney ones scar we have scar <laughs> and he probably could inch into the supremacy category but i really don't think he is a supremacist i think he just you know he is wholly self-interested though and he's using the hyenas to get his own way we have gaston from beauty and the beast Ooh. That's you my know. favorite villain song. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I use antlers in all of my decorating. What? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and he eats a lot of eggs. Yeah, we've Gaston. And then, of course, we have Ursula from The Little Mermaid. And Ursula might inch into the chaotic category, too, because mm. I never really understood what her motivation was so much that she just liked collecting favors from people. Yeah, and I haven't seen the Little Mermaid. Does she? It's is it for her own? Does she get Ariel's voice to like? Does she then use it? I forget how that works, but it is kind of like she enjoys having power, 
for weaker people who are not as self-realized as her to be in power. So it is, it is self-interest. She likes being important. And in the end, in the end, she's, she's, she's going for King Triton's throne or something. Oh, okay. I, I think. Good. Cause, way, to, cause way to remember this movie. She ends up getting him to sign a contract too. Um, Mother Gothel Entangled, I think is a very clear example of a self-interested character because the reason that she has Rapunzel is to stay young. Uh, oh, here's another one uh, from, from Disney. I think King Candy from Wreck-It Ralph oh, absolutely. is also a self-interested character. Voiced he, by our friend, our Alan, friend Alan Tudyk. Tudyk. And by our friend, right. I mean, it's a one-sided friendship of that Adam and I really like him and he doesn't know he exists. <laughs> that's right. But, but that's okay. Um, but King Candy will not allow uh, the, the uh, video game to get reset because he has amassed all of this mm-hmm. power and influence within this one video game. We also have Hans from Frozen who wants an open door. He wants a, you know... I've been searching my whole life to find my own place, and that's the throne of someone else's kingdom. Yeah, so we have lots of the Disney villains in this category. I think, like you said before, because they're fairly easy to relate to, and they also don't necessarily make us think bigger than mm, into mm-hmm. our societal implications. It's it's very clear, like good and bad. We want to root for the good guys. Vanellope is our protagonist. Forget King Candy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's a couple others that I put into this category. And again, there's many, many more that we don't have time to talk about. Um, there's a few from the Marvel movies, Obadiah Stain from Iron Man, uh, the, in the very first Iron Man movie, he's the one that it's basically taken over Stark Industries and he doesn't want Tony's change of heart to go forward and to change the company because he's making money hand over fist, selling weapons to people. Rosemary's father in The Long Way to a Small Angry Planet, likewise self-interested selling guns to both sides of a civil war in order just to make money. So that's a familiar one for some of us who've been reading the book club. All right. Category four is pain, your own pain that you have suffered in the past coming out. I like to say coming out sideways, coming out in ways that because you have not dealt with it, because it is still roiling inside you and it and it spills out in harmful ways on other people. And the primary example, I think, in the entire canon of nerddom for this is Zuko from Avatar The Last Airbender. Prince Zuko's character is his entire character arc is overcoming the abusive relationship with between him and his father. We don't have to talk a lot about this, but um, I'll put a link to a video, which is an hour and a half long about Zuko wow. psychology in the show notes. Um, but it, it goes, it goes into great detail about how Zuko has been harmed by his relationship mm. with his father. And then, then he then harms other people because of that relationship. Um, and his, yeah. his character arc through the three seasons of Avatar is beautiful because by the end of it, he has overcome that, um, that abusive relationship, especially with the help of uncle Iroh who sticks mm-hmm. with him for that entire time, loving him back into that right relationship. And it's a beautiful story, but for the first couple of seasons, Zuko does some horrible stuff because of the pain that he is in. It's good, you know, it goes back to the idea of, of hurt people, hurt people. And these people may have, may be, in fact, very much are victims. And yet their pain becomes 
their pain is then multiplied and furthered and then visited upon other people. Very visually, when I think of this category, I do think of Taka from Moana, Mm -hmm. the beautiful earth and goddess whose heart was stolen. She was, she was violated by having this heart taken from her and she's transformed into this lava creature full of anger, who is, who is very deeply hurt and lashes out at other people. And it's not until, as we've talked about before, Moana reaches out to her, calls her by name, says that she knows who she is, that she's restored and her pain is able to, to be seen and shared like a good chaplain might do. Yeah. And she's able <laughs> yeah. to be restored into being Tafiti. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've also recently talked about Wanda Maximov has a, a deep amount of trauma uh, and yet uses that pain to entrap others in the world that she has created by creating the hex, essentially trapping this whole town of people um, by creating a new version of her husband that is not true to who he really is. She visits her pain on others. At the end of WandaVision, she also does have this catharsis in which she realizes mm-hmm. what she's been doing is wrong. Um, but for the most of that show, she really is the villain of her own show mm-hmm. uh, until she starts un, um, actually coming to grips with her pain. Well, and that's some of these some of these villains being on in the more modern properties they they are more intriguing because it's it's a more relatable pain. So we've talked a little bit, a little bit on this season about <laughs> Encanto and Abuela, how she is technically the villain of the piece. She is the one who's sowing the discord. And again, not intentionally, but because she has been deeply hurt, her pain has been unable to be uh, processed fully, exercised from her, shared and shifted into something that's not as harmful. And it takes Mirabelle's noticing and and bringing out that story for abuela to come to embrace to accept her pain and it it's not something i don't think she could have done earlier on she needs mirabelle to be the person to do it she needed that time to heal because it was so traumatic but her avoidance of that pain and her trapping her family in this system of perfection is what creates so much of the conflict Mm -hmm. Uh, another one in this category is uh willow rosenberg in the sixth season of buffy the vampire slayer when uh near the end of the season uh her her girlfriend tara is killed and willow goes uh, her grief sends her into this into this spiral, uh, and she becomes what what gets affectionately known as Dark Willow in the fan community. Um, and it isn't until the final episode of that season when Xander, the one of the characters in the whole show without powers, is able to through their connection and their old old friendship, kind of love her back into uh, a better way of grieving, a, a way of grieving that isn't going to destroy the world, basically. And then the final person we have put in this category, you might think belongs maybe in self-interest and supremacy, but in fact belongs in the pain category. And that's Darth Vader. Darth Vader. Yep. Talk yeah. about him, Adam. Big, big time. I mean, Darth Vader, in a similar sense, like with Zuko, Darth Vader got groomed by the emperor for hmm. years to be. Have you ever heard the story <laughs> of Darth Pelagius the Wise? Indeed. Um, and ever since he was a small child, you know, uh, and at the end of episode one, Phantom Menace, the person who will become Emperor Palpatine, who at that point is, is now the chancellor, says, you know, we'll keep an eye on you, on your career. And we then know 10 years later when Attack of the Clones begins that they have had a relationship. Um, and then he continues to manipulate Anakin for the rest of until he becomes Darth Vader. And then once he is now, now he is Darth Vader and he has 
you know, lost the duel with Obi-Wan and had three of his limbs cut off and was left for dead, you know, on Mustafar with all this lava and fire around him. He is in constant pain and, and he holds on to those dark side powers in order to deal with this pain, you know, Mm. and, and in, um, I know we're not supposed to talk about things that are still airing, but in the Obi-Wan show, there's a, there's a moment where you see his, his, um, his black clo- uh, his black costume be put on him and the the thing in the front that has the buttons on it you mm-hmm. see it go into him and it goes in a couple of inches Ooh. yeah this is not just a thing that goes on the front it it goes into yeah. his body and you realize wow that must hurt <laughs> um and so darth vader he does horrible things and worse things when you see the stuff in between revenge of the Sith, which where he did the worst thing he could possibly do, which is the massacre mm-hmm. of the younglings in the, in um, during order 66. Uh, then we see some, even some really bad things uh, in the other properties between there and, and a new hope. Um, but it isn't again until his son, Luke, you know, helps to redeem him and to bring him back to the light by commiserating, by saying, I will not fight you. Right. But up until there, there's just this pain in Darth Vader and he takes it out on everybody around him. So we see his physical pain. He also has an extreme emotional pain that he is running from. He has walled himself off, having lost the love of his life, Padme. That was kind of the fixation of his daydreams for so many years after, you know, are you an angel? Yeah, I think from, fixation from is a good word. Onwards. Fixation is a really good word. Uh, because well, it's weird. Their romance never really makes sense. No, it's, you know, it's weird. It's what makes Attack of the Clones the worst of the Star Wars movies. Yes. Um, it's just that their romance is just icky. I don't like sand. <laughs> Indeed. Not just because of the writing is it bad, but it's weird. It's it's yeah. weird. And so he has lost this, like we said, fixation of his of his life. Um he doesn't I don't know. Did he, does he know that his kids were born? Oh no, I he should has, know this. He has he, no idea until Got um, it. Okay. In, until he actually puts two and two together about when he's when he when he learns who destroyed the Death Star, basically. Oh, his name's Luke Skywalker and he's from Tatooine. Yikes. He must be my kid. Right. Yikes. Um, because they they hide they hid Luke and Leia pretty well. Right. He's lost his wife, he's lost his child, he's lost the relationship with his mentor. All of that emotional pain is weighing on him. And that that is one of the the whips that drives him along with this physical pain that you've explained. Yeah. And he and and he holds on to that that dark side power because it's a way of channeling that pain. Um and and we, it's not a good place to channel the pain, but it makes him more and more and more powerful. As we think about our complicity in each of these motivations, running from pain or even just discomfort is something that is, I find really easy to relate to. Um, perhaps more running from discomfort. I don't think pain is necessarily a good thing. I don't think we should seek it out. And I don't think that people who are experiencing pain, should we say things like it's all part of a plan or it's whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. God never gives you any burden. You can't manage whatever cliches we have, but so much of our world of our sinfulness can be is derived from trying to avoid discomfort, be it boredom, be it having to look deeply inside ourselves, ex- experiencing emotional discomfort, we spend a lot of time anesthetizing ourselves against difficult things. We spend a lot of, of our money on you know comforts and things that might be not necessary that are short-term instant gratification. And all of that 
leads to these wider systems that we're all complicit in around, you know, the degradation of our environment and poor labor in other parts of the world, all of this consumerism that we participate in, they're all bombs that don't truly heal us or feed us, but instead kind of just anesthetize us briefly for a time. And then we're left wanting more. So we run from pain. We don't want to experience it. And we find comfort in all the wrong things. So our final category, and I think the one that is the most interesting to talk about is seeking justice through destructive means. And this is mm-hmm. this is a really challenging category because we see in the villains, we, we know that the writers want us to see these people as the bad guys. And they definitely are the bad guys because of the way they go about doing things. But in some ways, what they're saying makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah. And a couple of, um, there are three Marvel villains from the MCU that fit this mold pretty well. Um, one is the Vulture from Spider-Man Homecoming. This is the character played by Michael Keaton, um, who was tasked to his whole con- his construction or demolition company was tasked with cleaning up the Battle of New York. Uh, and he buys all of these new trucks and everything to do that cleanup. And then all of a sudden, you know, Shield comes in and says, it might be Shield, I can't remember who it is, but I think it's Shield comes in and says, We got this. And he's like, But I have this contract. I'm out mm-hmm. millions of dollars. What are you doing? And then he decides, you know, I'm gonna I, I'm gonna pay them back for this. They they should they should have gone through their proper channels. They should have, I should have been able to continue. They they went back on their word. And so we can see his motivation and kind of commiserate with it and empathize with you know that villain origin story. But then the way he goes about kind of taking revenge on them uh, is what makes him a villain. So that's that's one. Uh the other two I think are a little bit more famous. Uh one being mm-hmm. Thanos. Um, but the snap, yeah, the snap, let's just look at a little bit of Thanos's dialogue. Okay. Mm -hmm. Thanos, uh, says to Gamora going to bed, hungry, scrounging for scraps. Your planet was on the brink of collapse. I'm the one who stopped that. Do you know what has happened since then? The children born have nothing, have known nothing but full bellies and clear skies. It's a paradise. How did it become a paradise? Because he literally murdered half. 50% 50% of the planet. And, and in his way, it makes sense doing it, having the population and doing it without prejudice completely randomly is the most just thing in his mind. Yeah, and he says that too. He says um, he about his own planet, Titan was like most planets, too many mouths, not enough to go around. And when we faced extinction, I offered a solution. And um, Dr. Strange says genocide. And Thanos says at random, dispassionate, fair to rich and poor alike. They called me a madman and what I predicted came to pass. And so, so Thanos has this vision of everybody thriving and the worlds that they live on being able to sustain the populations, right? It's a really nice vision. It is until you think about the fact that it's only gonna it would only last a few generations or so um, until those people continue unless you change the route that led to such degradation in the first place. And and so what what makes Thanos the villain, of course, is that a he thinks that he is the only one who has a good idea about any of this. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And he says the hardest choices require the strongest will. He is the only one who's able to make this calculus versus other people who have maybe thought of it, but aren't going to do it. (laughs) He even thinks about it as mercy. He calls it mercy. With all six stones, I could snap my fingers and they would cease to exist. Half the population of of the universe would cease to exist. I call that mercy. So he definitely has convinced himself of the righteousness of his path. But what what else could he do with those with those stones? Could he, instead of snapping away half the population, snap and double the resources? Huh. <laughs> you know, uh, it, you know, you think about like he's he's got a plan. He's going to do it. Well, and what makes these villains so intriguing is that they are fully convinced of the righteousness of their actions in their own story more so than any other category, they are the heroes and they are making the hard choices. They're doing what other people fear to do or aren't able to do. And it's, they, they make a half kind of sense and they, they definitely create the most firm pathways of empathy, at least for me as a viewer or reader of these prop of these stories, because what, because they have been wronged or they see another way of being, they just go about it in the worst ways possible. Yeah, and I think that's where that brings us to our last villain for the day, which is Eric Killmonger from Black Panther, who is probably the most interesting villain, definitely of all the ones that we've talked about today. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. of all of the Marvel villains, Killmonger is is really the only one who you kind of root for, even when he's doing awful things. Uh, he, you know, he's shooting people, he's killing people, he is, you know, killing Forrest Whitaker. And then throwing, Which you really you can't, can't, can't kill Forrest Whitaker. <laughs> you can't and he's do that. Throwing be a good T'Challa guy. off of the waterfall and all of this stuff. But we know where he comes from. You know, he comes from Oakland in 1992. That's the year uh, of that um, of Rodney King being, you know, beaten to within an inch of his life and riots in Los Angeles. And as T'Challa's foil in so many ways, you kind of wonder who who put who raised in that environment would not have those questions if T'Challa had been had not grown up in the sort of utopian Wakanda what choices would he have made what would look differently and he is he's a very compelling villain in the end yeah and Killmonger when he comes into the throne room in Wakanda the first time he says a very iconic line which I've read a lot of articles about this line and and they all say that this is like the central moment of the movie. Killmonger saying, y'all sitting up here comfortable. Must feel good. It's about 2 billion people all over the world that looks like us, but their lives are a lot harder. Wakanda has the tools to liberate them all. And he uses the word liberate very specifically here. And we can see, um, yeah, that Wakanda does have the tools to liberate them all. Killmonger thinks weapons. Right. Not double the resources. Yeah. Or whereas, yeah, Shuri and T'Challa might think, you know, education uh, and um, uh, and other resources that can Mm -hmm. that can change the calculus of of, of people's lives and to help everybody thrive for Killmonger. um, It's about getting even. And then Mm -hmm. and then he does dip into the supremacy uh, where it's about flipping who's on top. It reminds me a lot of our conversation last time about Android supremacy of the, the fear that when in some of the less interesting 
properties with androids, the idea is not that they will be equals with one another, but that the androids who have been on the lower tier of society will rise up over the humans. This is a similar thing. Instead of seeing a pathway forward for equality, um, there is there can only be because of this pain, because of this you know, generations of oppression, there can only be supremacy and it may as well be us on top finally. Mm-hmm. And Killmonger at the end of the movie, after, after he's, after he's, we know he's going to die. He says something incredibly poignant. He says, my pops said Wakanda was the most beautiful thing he ever seen. He promised he was going to show it to me one day. Do you believe that a kid from Oakland running around believing in fairy tales? Uh, it just shows the bleakness of his upbringing, uh, where he just didn't feel like he had any options. Uh, and we learned halfway through the movie that T'Challa's dad killed his own brother and left Eric alone <laughs> in Oakland. Um, and we we don't know if if his mother was in the picture or not. That's that's never really discussed. But um, but he feels abandoned, and he was abandoned. And it makes it makes him an incredibly tragic figure of just seeing how things could have been different, how with similar sets of circumstances, things could have gone another way. And yet this is how it it has gone. And it is ultimately a loss. It is, it is a tragedy. And what happens at the end of black Panther is that T'Challa is actually influenced by Killmonger's worldview in, in the more positive incarnation of that worldview, because now Wakanda, they open it up. They, they stop hiding from the world and they start sharing with everybody else. And the first place they go is Oakland and they're going to set up a center there. So I had two more real quick from, from the Disney mm-hmm. Pixar realm for seeking justice through destructive means. One being assistant mayor bellwether from Zootopia, who's okay. the, little, the yeah. little sheep, you know, yeah. she's the mastermind oh. behind the whole plan because she doesn't she like that. She's being dominated by the predators in in the land of she's trying to engineer places where the predators will be feared and therefore locked up correct she wants the predators to be feared so that the the prey animals which is 90 percent of the population of zootopia Mm. can have some more opportunities you know so you can see where where she's coming from but she doesn't go about it in a very nice way prey animal supremacy and it's indeed the partnership between a predator and a prey animal that shows us a way forward yeah between the fox and the rabbit um whose names we definitely remember nick and judy thank you good job the last one is syndrome from the incredibles oh man i know because he's got that iconic line when everybody is super no one will be you know he wants he's kind of a joking mocking seeking justice through destructive means i think so yeah yeah you can see that he thinks that he is making everybody equal Mm -hmm. now that's that's his motivation because he got he got a long time ago when he was a kid got shunned by mr incredible and that left a mark on him and so now so maybe there's he we could also maybe slot him into the pain category Mm -hmm. as well because it's all coming out of his pain from being snubbed but now he sees himself as the hero of the story because he wants to make everybody equal through his technology. These villains are compelling, um, whether it's because there are wild instincts in each of us that might understand something about those who commit the chaos or whether or not we identify with those who are running from their pain. Each of them show us a little bit about who we could be if we are left 
without the desire to move towards towards God and towards right relationship. Each of them shows us a little bit about who we are and what our motivations could be if left unchecked. Yeah, and when we confess our sins, we are opening up these spaces within ourselves for God to fill. Uh, we are trying to recognize within ourselves those sinful places, these places where we have distorted relationships with God and with others and with all of creation and say, uh, we are sometimes the villains of our own stories. And yet uh, the, the true protagonist of our story is not us. We believe the true protagonist of our story is God in Christ. And that redeeming love of God helps us to move away from that villainous nature and towards a nature in which we are able to um, come together and make this world a better place. This time on the podcast, we're reading chapters Kedrium and Hatch, Feather, and House from the Long Way to a Small Angry Planet. Here's a quick recap. In the time since the Akarak attack, Kizzy can't sleep. All her fear has no place to go. Her late night, or is it an early morning, is interrupted when a strange Aloan ship pings the wayfarer asking for aid. The ship, it seems, belongs to Pei, Ashby's secret lover, and the crew is welcomed aboard while Kizzy and Jenks head over to the ship to do repairs. That's when Kizzy notices something scary, a whole wall full of mines placed by a protesting dock worker intended to blow up the ship and anything around it. She works her way through the tech puzzle presented by the mine, and then she and Pei return to disarm them all. The women discuss fear and Kizzy's troubles sleeping since the attack. Pei admits that she is scared all the time, but she doesn't tamp down the fear. It just is, and she is familiar enough with it to function. Bolstered by this, Kizzy does what she does best and disarms the minds. Turns out that's the real key to a good night's sleep. Rosemary receives a note on the Teremi from Nib, who works in the archives. Not much is known about this species, except they seek to understand the pattern or patterns of the universe and model their life after it. Recent developments in their reproduction has meant a huge shift in the pattern, which is all fine and good, but the Teremi who don't conform to what the leaders are saying is the pattern are not heard from again. Nib warns Rosemary to be careful as they approach these strange, unpredictable people. Before arriving at Sissix's home, Rosemary is primed with a quick lesson on Andrisk family structures. An Andrisk is raised in a hatch family, forms a feather family, and then reforms and swaps as life needs change, and settles down to raise other people's hatchlings in a house family. Rosemary works hard to reorient her mammalian-brained reptilian thinking. She meets Sissix's offspring and then her real family, the people who raised her. Watching the cuddling, coupling, snuggling mass of Andrisks, Rosemary realizes that although Sissix may count the Wayfarer crew as her feather family, they don't give her the kind of affection she needs and craves. Coming to Sissix's room, Rosemary broaches the idea of becoming a member of Sissix's feather family in all the ways possible an idea that goes over quite well. My favorite moment in these two chapters is actually when Jenks goes into the fishbowl with the bucket of bolts and makes Ashby sort them with him. Because I, I like that Jenks has this, you know, he has a good idea. There's nothing we can do to help 
uh, Kizzy right now. We're just going to freak out for the next couple hours because we can't do anything about it. So let's, let's sort these bolts because I've been meaning to do it for years. And it'll take our minds off of it. And then she's going to be fine, but I don't want to freak out. And I, I like that part. There's a lot in these cha- this first chapter about the theme, continuing on the theme of humans repressing their emotions, right? So we talked about Dr. Chef, whose grief is so present that he knows where it is and he can function. We have um, Jenks and Ashby working through their fear, uh, Ashby for his lover and for his crewmate and Jenks for his best friend in the entire universe who could be blown up at any second. And they're processing their fear and anxiety by doing something productive to kind of take their mind off of it. But as Jenks says, it's better than looking out the window. Um, And then finally pay the kind of main lesson of the chapter is pay's conversation with Kizzy about pay's afraid all the time. She's afraid of getting shot down. She's afraid of vegetables that haven't been washed properly. She's afraid of fish. And she, instead of repressing that fear, she instead is familiar with it and is able to function as a result. And that is what Kizzy does in this chapter. She faces a wall of death, all these minds. She acknowledges her fear and then she moves forward. It reminds me a little bit of the uh, Bene Gesserit um, litany against fear. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is the mind killer. Fear yep. And I will let it pass through me. When it is gone, uh, there will be nothing, only I will remain. Mm. I didn't get that exactly right, but it's close to that. Well, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I think this is one of the lessons I'm noticing in my third or fourth reread that Becky Chambers is teaching us is when she has all these other sapient species who have different ways of being, different social mores, different ways of seeing the world, she's able to explore a little bit about humanity as a result. So yeah, humans, we, we is this one of those silly human things where you pretend you're not afraid? Uh, Pay can't hide her fear. It's literally on her cheeks. On her cheeks. The the, the colors, the swirling colors of the Eluan language. Mm -hmm. So you may as well at least become familiar with it and move on from there. Um, There's a, there's a, a, something we say to our kids sometimes, uh, which I've heard in a lot of different places, which is it's impossible to be brave unless you're afraid. Mm. If you're not afraid, you can't be brave because bravery only happens when you're afraid. And I, I really like that idea. I think it, it's kind of quoting Ned Stark when um, when he's when Brandon's talking to him, he says, "Can a man can a man be afraid and also brave?" And I think Ned says, "It's the only time a man can be brave." Uh, what about Hatch Feather and Hatch? Wait, I got that messed up. Hatch Feather House and House. Yeah, I really the Andrus yeah. way of forming families. I enjoy the just how different the andrisks are from humans and the the ways especially when we're in rosemary's head during that chapter mm-hmm. and ashby's head as well um just the having to keep reminding themselves this is different not worse or better mm-hmm. just different this is i am not used to this and this is weird and oh there's they're, they're over there coupling on a bench mm-hmm. in front of everybody whoa okay uh, and recognizing that is their culture that is their that is their expectation of their people and that's the way it is um and trying really hard not to make judgments negative especially negative judgments about it my, my squishy mammalian brain was still stumbling over that, even though part of the chapter is about these humans trying not to place their own 
preferences or cultural expectations on them. I still felt connected to the Andrisk children, even though I knew that Sissix as an Andrisk doesn't see them as people yet. She respects them. She's glad that they're alive. She doesn't necessarily expect that they will remain alive because it's, you know, they're not people yet. I also appreciate the the way that Andrisks form their families, which is that you're born into like a stable household full of elders. You're raised by people who have kind of decided to settle down. Then you form a feather family when you choose to, when you're old enough to, um, that kind of plays into like the, the queer culture's idea of like a found family Mm -hmm. that you, you form relationships with the people who are that you choose. And Becky, Becky Chambers as a queer woman, I'm, I'm sure is influenced at least subconsciously by that. Um, and that Sissick says like feather families are expected to change because your life may change. Your needs may change your lovers and your friends and the people who are important to you will change. And that it's not a good time to be raising children. Um, they might be fertile. They might be able to to lay eggs and have fertile clutches, but she said, Sissick says, I'm like, I can't imagine how people who have just learned how to be people are raising other people. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And the Aliwans also do this. They have professional fathers, as we'll learn in later books. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. So, so having these different family structures challenges our our way of thinking that perhaps the way that we were raised is the right way. Mm-hmm. Is the uh, only way. The right the way. The only way. Right. There's a there's a, a moment in that chapter where they're talking about the, or thinking about the different biologies where the reptilians, they hatch from their eggs and they can walk around and, you know, whatever they can do their stuff right away. Whereas the mammals are completely helpless for years. And so I think Sissix reflects on, well, maybe that's why they have more of that maternal instinct right away, because without it, their young would die. Um, and that leads to, I don't think they talk about it in this chapter, but Sissix talking about how she can't understand why a child which is potential essentially is mourned more than the loss of an adult with friends and accomplishments and relationships that have been formed over years. That is a poor, it's very difficult for my mammalian brain to wrap my mind around. And yet you understand from this reptilian standpoint where a lot of the clutch doesn't make it the children, once they're once the hatchlings come out of the eggs, they also might not make it. And that's a sad thing. Um, but it's not to them as sad as losing a full member of the community. And that impacts how they live their lives. When Sissix is talking about the early spacefarers from the Andrus community, getting back home safely was important. And you should be proud if you were able to navigate the, the rings of their home, of their moon's home planet, because it shows that you have care enough for the people in your community to come back home safe and alive, to not waste, not just the potential, but all of the accomplishments and relationships you've formed. It's fascinating. And it's very hard to read this chapter and not realize how deeply influenced I am around the concepts of exclusivity in a romantic relationship of nuclear families and biological children and gestation having like a a huge impact on a person. All of that is coming from my human perspective. Yeah. And so the author does such a good job of fully forming these other cultures with their expectations, these other species that have different biology and different uh, cultural mores. And then the characters do a wonderful job of modeling that interspecies connectivity uh, where they, they know that they're different, but they don't let that difference sunder them from each other. And at the end of the chapter, Rosemary 
realizes that Sissix has created a feather family of which she is the only Endrisk and the rest of the people in that feather family are the crew of the Wayfarer. And when Rosemary recognizes this, she has already had a little bit of a crush on Sissix. We see it peak here and there in, in Rosemary's uh, point of view um, sections. After visiting the family that raised Sissix and seeing how Andrisks are in amongst their own people, Rosemary recognizes just how isolated Sissix must feel on the Wayfarer and how much she has been pulling back and, and, and holding herself back from the types of touching that she would, would be most comfortable with um, specifically because she's trying to honor the experience of the human crew of the Wayfarer. And Rosemary has decided that I want to be a full member of your feather family, Sissix. And, and that might mean, you know, coupling in the ways that your family does uh, in the Endress homeworld. Um, and then they have a long discussion about that because Sissix is like, wait a second, I know how humans are around this. <laughs> I don't want your squishy mammal brain to get overloaded by hormones. And yet, thank you. She was great. You know, she's, she's grateful. very grateful about it. And it's a really beautifully written scene because they see how much they respect each other and care for each other. And that ends up being the most important thing around that feather family is that respect that these two characters have for each other, which is why it becomes a natural outgrowth of their relationship that they would move into a space of intimacy that for humans would be a little weird, but for Andrisks would be completely normal. And they kind of meet in the middle. And, and laying out the fact that Sissix understands Rosemary has might have different expectations and wants to be conscientious of that. And Rosemary is able to fully consent to what she's getting into, which is, you know, to put it in human terms, we're not romantically exclusive. You're going to go off and do Andrisk things with Andrisk people, and that's okay. And here I am in this way. I'm not in love with you. I like you. I respect you. And let's be together in this way that you value and is important to you. And I'm sure Rosemary will enjoy too. <laughs> yeah, but <laughs> the scene the scene fades to black before we before we see any of that. Good and, old Becky uh, Chambers. <laughs> next time on the podcast, we'll be reading chapters October twenty fifth and Heresy, pages three hundred three to three fifty nine. Happy reading! Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast for Nerdy Christians. Please give us a rating or review on your favorite podcasting app so others can discover us too. You can find us at nerdychristians.com or on social media, facebook.com slash nerdychristians, and on Twitter at nerdychristians, where I occasionally tweet bad memes. You can find Adam on Twitter at RevAdamThomas or on his website, adamthomas.net. Planar Steel, sequel to last year's Vampire Mist, is out now where you too can learn how to win friends and influence yetis. And as always, you can find both of us right here on the next episode of the podcast for Nerdy Christians, where faith meets fandom. Let us confess our sins, give up to God our villainy, and recognize Jesus as the protagonist of our own stories. We know we are complicit in the great sins of the world, sins like poverty and racism and environmental degradation, sins so big that we rarely contemplate our small parts in them. Let us confess these sins together and tell Jesus we no longer want to be part of the problem, we want to be part of the solution. And then we will hear him say, time to roll up your sleeves. Amen. No,